Hello, and welcome to the Science Behind Science podcast. My name is Ann Tushar. And I'm Dennis Grenzowitz. Here, we'll take you backstage of research to introduce you to the people behind science and how scientific discoveries really happen. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jamie Becker, a tenure-track professor of biology at Alvernia University. Jamie received his PhD in biological oceanography from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and did postdocs at both MIT and Haverford. He's been a professor for both Alvernia and Haverford, teaching a variety of courses, ranging from intra-level to upper-level, and laboratory courses as well. To us, Jamie represents a fresh, highly qualified professor who cares a great deal about making sure his students deeply understand their material. Jamie was highly influential in my learning at Haverford as he taught two of my upper-level biology courses. I specifically appreciated how interested Jamie was in receiving feedback throughout the courses he taught, which is something we discussed today. We also talked through undergraduate course design and making the most of structured learning experiences. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jamie Becker. All right, so we're going to get started with our first question for you, just to kind of get to know you a little bit and also set the stage here for our episode today. What was your first day like as a teacher? It's a, that's a great question. I should probably start by saying that it actually wasn't all that long ago. So I'm currently in my third year, third full year as an assistant professor. So I can remember it pretty well. I remember being nervous. I think that's common. You've probably heard people discuss the concept of the imposter syndrome before, this idea that, you know, everyone else knows what's going on and you don't, or maybe that you're, you know, that you're viewed as sort of the reference in a certain subject or a certain topic when it's it's very difficult, right, to know everything about a certain topic or subject. So I think I'm not sure, but I would guess that most teachers in general probably feel those feelings sometimes that they're faced with a room full of students that are expecting them to always know the answer, to always be the expert, to be the resource in everything. And that can be daunting. That can be challenging. So I remember being nervous, but I remember in the end, before my very first class started, I remember thinking about how I knew that I genuinely wanted to teach, that I was that, that had been a goal of mine for a long time, that I genuinely cared about my students' learning and understanding the material and meeting my learning objectives. And so I, I used that to calm myself and think that the rest would just take care of itself. And that's honestly what I've found a little bit. But yeah, that first class was, it wasn't small. I think I had about 40 students in the room. And I, I remember that awkward moment when you're about to start class and all those eyes are on you and it's time to sort of perform, right? But it, you know, it went pretty well. And I remember thinking after it, you had that moment where you're like, okay, you know, I, I can do this. I can, this is, this is something I can handle moving forward. You know, some, just like any job, some days go better than others. Some lectures go better than others. But in general, I think as long as your motivations are sound, that it, it takes care of itself. What was that course and how did you end up being the teacher for it? If you mind delving into it a little bit more detail. Yeah, sure. I taught several courses in my first semester of full-time teaching, but the first course just schedule-wise that happened to come up was a 100-level course titled Global Change Biology. So essentially talking about the climate, how it affects biology on the planet as a whole, the entire biosphere. And that particular course was geared toward non-majors, a little bit extra challenging in that sense that not everyone in the room was coming all excited about biology right from the get-go. It also tamped down a little bit of that imposter syndrome though, because maybe they weren't uh, <laughs> as anticipating you to be an expert in all things biology. You mentioned that that was one of the courses you had scheduled that year, and that was an intro level course. Did you teach any other style courses, maybe upper level or lab-based? Yeah, I was sort of all over the place from the very beginning. And that's something I think is probably a common experience for a lot of professors and something that I've continued to experience moving forward is that any given semester is going to have a mix of courses, a really diverse set of courses in a lot of ways, right? Non-majors, majors from the 100 level up to the 400 level, and then a diversity of topics as well. On the one hand, that's really challenging because there's a lot of inconsistency there. On the other hand, it's exciting and it keeps things variety. I would, I would not want to teach the exact same course every semester and only that course. Might be a good way to get really good at it, but it would lead to disinterest and burnout pretty quickly. That in the very beginning, when I first started teaching, in addition to that global change biology course, I had a 400 level, very small course that was on human impacts in the marine environment. Still, it had some common threads, actually, with that 100-level non-majors course and that we were talking about the habitability of the planet, climate of Earth in general, but really specific to the marine environment in that case. 
And that course was a very student-driven course, actually, where students really did some brainstorming concept maps in the beginning of the class so I could kind of take the pulse of what particular interests that small group of students had. There was about a dozen students in that course. And then I let them drive their projects and their, their own individual research into those topics. That same first semester, I also taught a 300-level course on biochemical adaptations. That one was the closest to your sort of traditional lecture course, where I was putting together a lot of content for lectures, but also having some student-driven projects as well. I'd like for us to delve a little bit more into like the difference between those styles of course creation, how you have some that are geared for small groups of students versus larger groups that are more traditional. That'll be really interesting. Before we delve into that too much, though, can we talk a little bit more about the overall science path for a student at like Alvernia or somewhere else, someone who's pursuing a biology degree? Can you kind of take us through how the courses are organized in their journey and that process? Essentially the curriculum for a biology undergraduate student? Yeah, essentially that. I think there's no single answer to that for sure. You're going to find varied curriculum at all different institutions, certainly globally. And I think there's a lot of discussion on that. It's a really interesting question about what, what is the ideal type of curriculum to have, what is going to set up students for the greatest chance of success post-graduation, which is often the goal. I think one of the initial things that's thought of a lot is just to think about biology as a discipline and what disciplines it's built upon, basically. You often hear people talk about how biology is really just applied chemistry. Sometimes that's meant as a dig toward biologists, but it is accurate in that most biology textbooks, if you crack them open, the very first chapter is going to be something like the chemistry of life or something like that, right? Because it really is biology, the science of life really is built on a foundation of chemistry and chemical reactions. We're essentially living chemical reactions, which is, is cool. It's a good thing. And then I would always argue if, if chemists get uh, combative like that, I, I might mention that, well, chemistry is really applied physics, right? If you want to take it back a step further, and then you can go back further and say that physics is applied math. It's hard to get much below that. It, it all, you know, whether you like or hate math, it all unfortunately goes back to, to fundamentals of mathematics. Uh, I always joke to my math colleagues, my, my math professors, that they're the only ones that can really stand up on that soapbox and, and yell about how everything is, is what they teach. With that in mind, though, you know, it would be important for a biology student, you know, liberal arts education or otherwise, to definitely have a strong foundation in mathematics, in physics, and in chemistry. With that in mind, how does that work, right? So if you have a student taking nothing but math and physics courses for their first year and maybe chemistry in their sophomore year, are they not getting to biology until their junior? That doesn't mean leave much time for the biological sciences. And there's a lot to cover there as well. I don't think there's one answer to that. I know some of the schools I've taught at, students will take chemistry first before they take any biology as an undergraduate. Other schools, Alvernia, where I currently teach, students take it concurrently in their first semester. I think there's pros and cons to both. I think when you wait to take biology, a lot of times you're well into your undergraduate career before you start to meet your biology professors and get to know the biology faculty and that can be difficult. But sometimes if, if you're not coming with a strong chemistry foundation initially, then some of those early biology courses can be extra challenging. It's tough. I think one thing that I've found that can help is for the faculty at a particular institution to really speak to each other. Currently, I'm teaching a, an introductory biology sequence. We call it principles of biology one and two. In the fall semester, you know, your very first semester as a first year student, at Alvernia, you'll take Principles of Biology 1, and then in your spring semester, you take Principles of Biology 2. Concurrent with those, you're taking General Chemistry 1 and 2 in your fall and spring semester. So really, the faculty talking to each other, the biology and chemistry faculty talking to each other, what topics are you covering, how are you covering them, when are you covering them, to try to strategically align those concepts so that students are getting them in an order that makes sense, or if they're happening concurrently, they're done in a way that really supports uh, and reinforces those topics. Because I think a big part of learning new material is repetition and diverse repetition. So getting that information from a diversity of sources, you might hear it in my biology course presented the way that I happen to present it, but then you also read it in your textbook. And then you're also getting some of that content from your chemistry professor in a slightly different way. Or perhaps you're going to you know outside tutoring or supplemental instruction and that peer who's slightly more senior to you is explaining it in a, in a slightly different way. In my experience, it's that diversity of voices, the diversity of information presented in distinct ways will resonate with different students in different ways, but also even with the same student on slightly different cognitive levels that can ultimately lead to the goal of that deep, sustained understanding that 
isn't just memorization for the exam, but actually retaining the material well past the end of the course. That's really interesting because that's more of a first principles approach to an extent of how can we make sure that students are retaining information rather than just like building a course curriculum, which I like a lot. So you're kind of suggesting that departments talk to each other more. How does that work from an institutional perspective? If you could just give us a little bit of an idea pretty quickly, is that cross departmental meetings? Do professors just chat with each other over coffee? Like how do those decisions get made in your experience anyway? Yeah, great question. And again, that's going to vary a lot by institution. So if you have within a given university or college, the usually it's broken up into separate what they'll typically call colleges, which is confusing terminology if the whole thing's already your college. For instance, at Alvernia right now, Alvernia is a university. The university is broken up into separate colleges. My, my position in my department is part of STEAM College, so science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So those types of disciplines fall under that college, whereas say your social sciences, humanities are in a different college. Then within the college structure, that's broken up into different departments. In our case, we have a natural sciences department that includes biology and chemistry. So I actually get to see, because of the size of the school, the relatively small size of the school, I get to see my chemistry colleagues at every departmental meeting. Again, just because the college is, is relatively small, we're all in the same building. Our offices are close to each other. So there's a lot of both formal and informal interaction, as you alluded to, Dennis, both at, you know, at set meetings, but also just over coffee in the hallway discussing particular courses and even particular students as we advise our students as well. We'll talk to each other with one of my advisees is say struggling in their chemistry class. It's very easy for me to talk to the instructor of that class because I know them well. I have a relationship with them and we see each other a lot. I think this could be a big challenge at larger schools. You know, there's a lot of positives to larger schools in terms of resources and the larger your school, the more diversity of courses you can probably offer because your mm -hmm. faculty size is larger. But it probably it can be, I have never taught at a very large school, but I have been a student at one and been a postdoc at one or multiple actually. And I get the sense that it can be challenging, right? That it, it's not impossible by any means, but you probably have to make an even bigger effort to track down your colleagues and have those discussions. That makes a lot of sense. To jump back on the train of the course curriculum development. So you take your intro courses generally in your primary and then sophomore year. That might look like a lecture course that might have a lab attached. And then you get into the way that institutions structure their upper level courses, which is more bespoke. But could you talk to what those upper level courses might entail? So I think before we get into details there, I think you're sort of hinting around the concept of flexibility in the curriculum as well. So as much as you can tailor a curriculum, but also put work flexibility into that curriculum so that each individual student, depending on their own personal professional goals, but also just hobbies and interests can sort of chart a path that they think makes the most sense for them. You want a balance there because you don't want students missing out on key content. If you give them too much luxury to say, all these courses are optional, just pick the 12 that you like, then you, you might be graduating or trying to graduate students that are missing key foundational concepts and components that you need to get in some of those lower level, maybe 100 level classes or even 200 level. But beyond that, the goal I think is to develop a flexible curriculum that allows students to pick and choose what they think will fit them the best. That's one of the issues that could be more challenging at a smaller school, because if you don't happen to have a faculty member with that expertise, it's going to be more difficult to offer that course, right? Or just total numbers, it's going to be less total possibilities. I think you mentioned potentially courses with labs. So that's one key component I think requires a lot of focus. I know at Alvernia, there's a big push and at a lot of schools to have as much hands-on real world learning experiences for the students as possible. Now those can mean outside of the institution as well. Those could be internships or summer opportunities at other locations. And we encourage those as well. But I think there's been a big push where I am now for as close to 100% as possible of the science courses, biology courses, having an integrated laboratory component to them. That gets difficult time-wise because anytime you add on a course, this is different at different places, but our, our typical courses are three credits for students. A three credit course will meet about three hours a week. So your traditional lecture course, three hours of lecture, that's a three credit course. When we add on a laboratory component, that bumps it up to a four credit course. You get one additional credit. But the laboratory is an additional three hours a week. It actually doubles the amount of time that students and instructors are in the building, let's say. So there's a little bit of a historical, maybe lack of appreciation for that time commitment, but how important that time commitment is. 
with that in mind, that we've really tried to integrate as many courses or to institute an integrated lab into as many courses as possible. Both of those principles of biology courses I mentioned, the introductory courses, they both have an integrated laboratory component with them. And then the vast majority of our 200 and 300 level courses also have an integrated lab. Again, the idea being trying to get our students as much real world learning experience as possible and to take those concepts that are being discussed in lecture and put them to practice, right? Apply those to real settings, to real experiments, because that's what science is, right? Experimentation is a, is a huge part of science. It's not a topic that I think is served well by just reading a textbook and hearing lectures in the classroom. And I think that's been recognized for a while now. I was also wondering what kind of upper level courses that you like to teach the most or what you thought might be most valuable for students. Yeah, sure. I think there's two upper level categories that I really enjoy. Upper level courses that still have an integrated lab, which sometimes falls off. A lot of times the introductory courses will have labs and sometimes upper level courses will be taught more seminar style and maybe not have that laboratory component. I found that upper level courses with a lab are really fun to teach and really exciting because often you're dealing with a cohort of students and they tend to be smaller as well that really is set up well for constructing labs that are very inquiry-based and discovery-based. The classic term is cookie cutter, so not cookie cutter labs, not a lab where it's a very established protocol. You know, I'm a microbiologist, so I'll use that example. I hand you a test, a cloudy test tube, and I say, you know, and Dennis, I know what's in this test tube. I want you to run a series of tests. Here's the protocols, and you tell me what's in that test tube. You know, is it E. coli? Is it Staphylococcus? Is it gram positive? Is it gram negative? I understand why those exist. We want to see that you can follow a protocol and you can apply these laboratory techniques and arrive at an expected answer. The downside to that to me, though, is that that's not what science is. You know, when you're doing PhD research, research or anything beyond undergraduate, or if you actually have a career as a scientist, a profession as a scientist, you're not going to get any grant money to, to say what's in the tube that everyone already knows what's in that tube, obviously. I think we sometimes do a disservice to, to undergraduates by giving them the impression that that's what experimentation is. That's what research is, is just almost like cooking. Here's the recipe. Can you make the meal taste good? Are you a successful cook that way? Much like cooking, though, there's some, some artistry to it. There's some creativity to it. Getting that point across and having an actual discovery-based lab where, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow some protocols. We're going to learn some techniques. And you're going to need to become successful in those techniques to pull this off. But I don't actually know what the answer is ahead of time as the instructor. Nobody knows what the answer is ahead of time as the instructor, because that's science. That's one of the main things that got me excited about the natural sciences in general is that unknown, that discovery base, that there are questions that no human on this planet knows, or at least as far as we know, doesn't know. And we're going to design experiments to try to answer those questions, or at least answer them in part is exciting to me. That, that gets me going. So I think if you can have an, an upper level discovery based lab that pushes the boundaries of some of those things, you can start to instill that mindset in students at the undergraduate level as well. The risk there is that there's an even higher chance of failure. Those cookie cutter labs fail a lot too. So <laughs> I would argue that you failure across the board and that's actually a really important part of education and of doing labs as well is to realize that that's part of science. Science doesn't always work. If you're trying to answer something that no one else has answered before, it's probably not gonna be straightforward and you're probably not gonna answer it right away and you're gonna have to fail a handful of times first. That word failure has a very negative connotation to it. Being wrong has a super negative connotation to it. Learning that those don't have to be negative things, that you can learn a lot in failure, that that's part of it is, is something that I think doing those discovery-based labs can also help out with a lot. I was wondering about the discovery-based labs because I was thinking, how do you give students a good takeaway from a lab like that if everything kind of fails, if it kind of falls apart? And also how you best make use of that time, because we all know science takes a lot of time. You'll get into an experiment and you'll realize you need way more time than the allotted amount that you have. Do you think maybe you could speak to that a little bit more in like how you make sure that students come away having taken something, that they've learned something, even if it's failed a lot? Sure. And that's, that's an excellent question. The first thing I try to do is normalize failure to point out that I, as a scientist, I was able to earn a PhD, but there was a lot of failure involved in that process. And that everyone I know fails at that process. Even some of our most respected scientists in whichever field you're talking about still experience failure likely on a daily basis where certainly the first couple of times through an experiment, through a protocol, things don't work out exactly as anticipated. So at first I think normalizing it, helping a student feel like it's not just you, 
because there's that big danger there when things don't work in the lab that a student will walk away feeling, I'm not a scientist. I am not a researcher. I, this isn't for me. That's the phrase I'm looking for. This isn't for me. There's a big danger there because I firmly believe everything's for everyone. If you're passionate about it, if you're interested in it, then it's for you and everyone is capable. So I think normalizing it, helping students understand that they're not alone in that failure. They're not alone in not having success the first time around. And then the second component is really pointing out that was it really failure? So, okay, you expected or I expected, we all expected this to happen and it didn't happen. Or we were hoping to answer this question and we don't have that answer. Does that mean it was a complete failure? Did you learn anything from the process? Did we learn anything from the process? And a key way to do that is to think, how would you do this different next time, right? If you can say anything about, okay, if I were to repeat this, whether there's time to or not, because you pointed out time is a factor, maybe it's the end of the semester. So you're not gonna be able to repeat this in the context of this course. But if you could, how would you do it? Or if the next student comes along and they're gonna pick up the project, what can you tell them about what you did? And always 100% of the time, there is something to say there, which means it wasn't a total failure. It's only a total failure if you go, didn't learn anything. I have no, I would do it the same way. I have no idea how to do it differently, right? It's the only time that it would truly be a failure. The nice thing about it from an educational standpoint and in the context of a course laboratory, is that even though time is still a factor, the semester's going to end, we're going to run out of time, there aren't any real consequences to that like there are at higher levels of this. If you have written a grant and you're getting funding to accomplish a project and that's supposed to happen over three years and you're coming to the end of those three years and it hasn't happened, there's real stress there that's going to impact your ability to get future grants, things like that. I always remind my students that because those courses, those discovery-based courses are set up such that the grade isn't dependent on success in the classic sense. It's not dependent on you telling me what's in that tube. Oh, you got it wrong, wrong strain. You get to see, it's not like that. It's about your uh, dedication to the lab, your effort in the lab, your ability to perform the protocols and the procedures, whether they quote, really work or not and assessing why they didn't work. It's the critical thinking that goes into it that your grade is determined by. So there aren't the high stakes, while it's real world learning, the real world consequences at the high stakes aren't, aren't there because it's all tied to education. The goal is education. And if you can say something about why it failed and what you would do differently the next time, then you have reached that goal. It's actually success. <laughs> those are good points. Yeah, those are really good points, Jamie. You highlighted normalizing failure. You highlighted improving your critical thinking skills through discovery-based labs and things like that and trying to push students to think more deeply about what they're doing. Could you highlight any other aims or objectives that you have in those types of courses? And this is specifically not in relation to like rote memorization aims. Like we all know that a basic intro level course is trying to get you to be able to rote memorize information and then apply it in future situations. That's the perfect scenario. But could you speak more to other objectives or aims that might underlie those courses? Sure. Yeah, I think you're talking a little bit about course design, I guess, and, and uh, what your ultimate goals are for the course when you put a course together. And you touched on rote memorization. I think the natural scientists get a real bad rap for that, right? That it's terminology, it's jargon, topics you need to memorize, you know, the, the words that are bold in the textbook. Memorize these words, and then I'll ask you about the words on the exam, and then you regurgitate them to me, and you walk away with an A. And that's challenging, because that's not what it is. I think often, and I'll be honest, I was guilty of that myself as an undergraduate. I was very grade-focused, and, you know, the classic, tell me what you want me to know, I'll tell you on next week's exam. And then if you ask me a week later, I might not be able to tell it's you toast. Yeah, forget everything. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not applied to anything. It's not connected to anything. It's a list, bullet list. So I think that's the key. And it's a big challenge is to, you know, there's going to be some jargon. There's going to be some terminology to understand a, a subject. You have to be able to talk about the subject. You have to speak the language of the subject a little bit. The trick is to connect those terms, that jargon to something. You have to connect it to a person's life, to a person's individual interests. Again, whether those interests be on the professional level, like, hey, you want to you want to be an orthodontist at the end of this, or you want to be a veterinarian at the end of all this. So let's talk about how maybe initially this particular topic we're talking about doesn't seem to connect to that professional choice, but actually here's how it does. Or even just hobbies, right? You're interested in you know, something that seems completely distinct to what we're talking about, but actually it does connect to you. And the beautiful thing about biology is it always connects because I always tell my students, you are an animal on planet earth and that is biology, right? You are a living thing on this planet. 
And so anything that we talk about is going to have to do with life on this planet. It's going to have to, every living thing affects its environment in some way. Every living thing is, is affected by its environment in some way, you included. So all the things we talk about have connections. The trick is to find and identify those connections. And I think if I hammer that home enough, students then start to do it on their own, which is a really cool moment to see when students start to draw those connections without them being provided to them. And so I think that's how we can transcend that notion that the natural sciences or let's say biology in this case is just a list of terminology that one has to memorize. So that's a big goal of mine to, to go back to your original question there, Dennis. When I design a course, I heavily use something that I did not come up with by any means, something that people much smarter than me that think a lot about the science of learning have developed, and that is the concept of backward design. Basically, instead of just thinking about a course from, all right, what am I going to talk about on the first day? Put that lecture together. What am I going to talk about on the second day? Let's put that lecture together or open the required textbook and here's chapter one. So I'll start there. You do the complete opposite. You start with your ultimate course goals, objectives are often the phrase that's used as learning outcomes. So here are the things I want my students to walk out of this course with at the end of the semester or quarter, depending on the system that you're on. So when Dennis and Ann complete my course, here are the things that I want them to know and not just know right when the final exam happens, but actually know next year and the year after. And sometimes it's pie in the sky, but ideally for the rest of your life, you start there, you start with those learning outcomes and you backtrack from there. So you figure out what your learning outcomes are first, and then you start to think about, all right, given those, what content do I then need to provide to my students, whether it be in the lecture classroom setting or in the laboratory setting or both. And then you think about your assessments. How am I going to assess my students to see if I'm reaching those learning outcomes? If I want you all to understand concept X, how do I really assess that? Is it asking you to regurgitate terms or is it asking you to apply it some way in the laboratory in a real critical thinking setting? Maybe it's both. And so that backward design I have found to be a really useful model for constructing a course and trying to set yourself up for success as much as possible in terms of your students reaching those learning objectives. And thinking a little bit about how you do assessments and then also how you present material to students. Are you somebody who's like, I'm a textbook kind of guy, I like the textbook, or are you more like only writing on the board, write down what I want to tell you to write down? Or are you like a person who loves to bring in the outside resources to your lectures? Because we want to also think about engagement. How do you get them to engage well with that material? And what do you use to help them engage? Yeah, great question. And I think the engagement goes back to what we touched on before about connecting the material that's say in the textbook to an individual's life, to an individual's professional interests, to an individual's hobbies. As soon as you see how it connects to you, in general, by default, then you start to care at least a little bit more about the topic. And it's a challenge. You could be talking about a specific reproductive life cycle of, of an angiosperm, a flowering plant or something like that. And it's not immediately obvious how that connects to my love of skateboarding, let's say, right? It could be a real challenge. I think, I do think textbooks are important. I don't use textbooks in all my courses. It certainly depends on the course, but I think there are some amazing textbooks out there. There's been a lot of work put in by certain people to design really nice resources for students to have. And they've really evolved. Textbooks have come a long way from just that dusty tomb to things that have electronic resources built in, things that have active learning modules worked into them. A lot of textbooks these days will provide instructors with ideas for ways to engage students in the classroom. So I'm certainly not anti-textbook, but I do feel like if you're using a textbook in a course, that should be one of and not the only component in the course. One thing that I personally feel strongly about for myself is to not use the slides that come along with the textbook. They tend to be the figures from the book put, say, into a PowerPoint with some bullet points. And I think that the danger there is that it can become the instructor just sort of reading the textbook to the students in the classroom. Yep. The idea is the students yes. read the textbook on their own, ideally before the lecture, it doesn't always happen. And then lecture should be something more. It should be, again, about making those connections. It should be about taking that content from the textbook and applying it to your life, applying it to other subjects, applying it to your professional goals, or maybe what we're doing in lab if we have an integrated lab component. So it takes a lot more time, but I do always try to design my own slides partly for aesthetics, but also for making it my own. I feel like the more something is your own when you present it, the better it's going to go. From a student perspective, that might be if, if you're putting together a presentation for a class or for a conference or something like that, 
you can imagine how that might go if you take slides someone else made and you just try to present someone else's slides versus ones you actually constructed yourself, you'll feel more in tune with those. You asked about pulling in other content. I think with labs, it can be similar. There's some really nice lab manuals out there that are worked around this inquiry-based, discovery-based model that we talked about before. One that I've been working with recently that I really like is the Tiny Earth Network. It's actually run out of the University of Wisconsin. And they have put together a discovery-based microbiology lab to address a real-world global problem, which is the need for new classes of antibiotics. They have this semester-long lab course set up where students take soil samples and they try to isolate new strains of microbes from the soil and then actually test them for potential antibiotic activity. And then tying in with what you mentioned, Dan, where you run out of time, usually that and maybe doing some molecular identification of the microbes is as far as we can get in a semester. But because of resources that the Tiny Earth Network has at the University of Wisconsin, you can actually mail them strains from your course that are potential targets. And then they have a whole chemistry hub set up there to do some chemical extractions, test those chemical extracts with the potential of really discovering a new antibiotics. There is the possibility for that there. So that's a really nice opportunity for students to realize that, hey, what I'm doing today in the lab, I may be tired, I may be hungry, maybe don't want to be here right now. But what I'm doing isn't just about getting a grade. It's not just about learning this one method. It's about real research. It's about doing work that can actually lead to or tie into new discoveries that have the potential to address a global problem, have the potential to affect human health on a large scale. It's also a really nice way, and we'll get into this more, I think, but a really nice way to combine the topic of microbiology from an environmental sense, because the samples are coming from the environment. We talk about soil microbiology a lot and how it impacts the planet and impacts plants and crops, but maybe not directly human health. But then as soon as you get to the antibiotic part, now you're talking directly about human health. Most of my students will have taken an antibiotic at some point, or they certainly know someone who has and have direct connections to that and can see that from a human health standpoint. So it's a really nice model for that. And so I think the last thing I'll say on that question is I try not to reinvent the wheel. If people have put together some really nice resources, starting with those resources and then adapting them, making them your own is advice that I would give to other early career professors, because there's a lot of great stuff out there for all the negative rap that higher education gets from a traditional standpoint of these dusty old lecture halls and things like that. We've come a long way and people have done an amazing job through the science of learning to come up with new resources that are really great. Yeah. One point on that is that I always remember that when I took intro bio, there was a lab associated with it. And I'm pretty sure we did all of the standard important biology assays, Western blot, DNA extraction, PCR, ELISA, all of the basic stuff you'd do. I couldn't even tell you now, which we actually did let alone how to do any of them from that experience alone. But when you put the onus on the student to actually generate some kind of outcome that has meaning, I could explain to you all of the experiments I did for my thesis, which was independently driven with the goal being whatever I wanted it to be. I could tell you what those experiments were and probably write you the protocol now, three years later. And the only shift was that I was personally motivated to do it. I think what you speak to about providing a motivation for students really helps them to learn and then make the information theirs rather than just transiently use it. So I think that's really cool. What are some challenges that are associated with meeting these goals though? These are very lofty goals for professors. And like we've mentioned before, students take classes for different reasons. Is it a gen ed course? Are you teaching fourth year undergrads that are gonna go on to PhD or pursue some other form of graduate education? What are the challenges associated with hitting these goals that you align? There aren't any. It's super easy. Yeah. <laughs> <Not too easy. laughs> All right. Write the book then. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Good point. Touche. I think the biggest challenge is also the biggest gift, honestly. It's that, that literally every student is an individual and that's the very obvious statement to make, but something that can get lost in the shuffle, unfortunately, sometimes, especially if, if you've got a class, I believe the largest class I've taught had close to 60 students in the room. When you've got that many students, for just one semester, it can be a challenge to remember that you shouldn't necessarily think of this class as a class, but you should think of it as an assemblage, as a collection of individuals. There's been some cool work done on parallels between thinking about microbial populations and also thinking about human groups and human populations and how we sometimes do a better job of recognizing the individual roles of microbes than we do the individual roles of humans, which is something to consider. The fact that every 
person in that room, in that classroom or in that laboratory room is an individual all coming in with a diverse background of experiences, a diverse course educational background and the exact courses that they've taken, the quality of those courses, certainly diversity in their interests, their experiences, their hobbies, their professional goals. Ideally, the way I think education should work would be just literally one-on-one. Every course would be one student, one instructor, or maybe even one student with multiple instructors, Just, of course not feasible, but that's really how it should work. It should be as individualized as possible. So the trick becomes, how do you merge those two things? How do you have a room full of 60 people and make it as individualized as possible? There's no magic answer there. There's no one size fits all, of course. And there's going to be variety. Some semesters are going to go better than others. So I think from an instructor's standpoint, it's important to know that. I got some good advice early on that, you know, every lecture, you're not going to knock them out of the park. And it might even be a lecture you've given before that went really well. And for some reason that day, it didn't go so well. There's going to be ups and downs. And so you got to ride that wave a little bit. But I think one thing that can be done is to try and learn as much about your students as possible. Learn as much about each individual cohort as possible. The larger the class, the more challenging that is. But again, you can leverage technology a little bit here. One thing, and again, this was advice I got. Nothing I'll say today is probably original for me. So I should just get that. I should cite all my sources right off the bat. But I had a recommendation to do a survey before the semester even begins. Call them pre-course surveys or pre-semester surveys. So just a short Google form or something like that. Send that out to my students ahead of time. You don't get 100% response rate, but in general, students seem to appreciate them and they'll take five minutes to fill them out. You can pepper in semi-personal questions, kind of bands do you like, you know, what's the best movie you saw recently, things like that, just to humanize the educational experience a little bit. But then also ask them about their prior knowledge in a particular technique. Maybe I'm planning to do, you know, some DNA extractions and sequence analysis in this course. So I'll ask, do you have any experience in that? You can ask it. Yes, a little bit. No, huh? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And then Google Form will give you a little pie chart that just right away displays that. And so then I often show that to my students. It's all anonymous. There's no names linked with it, but I'll show that to my students on the first day of class and say, from the people who filled out the survey, here's a little bit about you and your peers, the people in this room, and just talk about what that means for the course and for how the course is designed. Uh, I try to emphasize that I'm going to do my best to design the course to tailor it as much as possible to this specific cohort of students. It's easier in certain courses and certain size courses than others, but to have that as a goal, I think is good to have. It's a lofty goal sometimes and sometimes not completely attainable, but striving toward it is always a good idea. I think another area in which I think higher education has made some wonderful strides recently still has a long way to go is along the lines of thinking about classroom environments, laboratory environments, and working to make them as equitable and as inclusive as possible. Again, recognizing the individuality of each student, recognizing historical situations that have not been equitable and have not been inclusive, talking about the impacts that that's had on a particular field like biology, but it's pervasive in all fields, bringing those to light, even all the way from designing your syllabus, all the way through constructing the course and the course assessments. That's something that I guess I should have said this in the beginning, but a lot of college professors, instructors don't have any formal teaching training, which is interesting to think about. And another thing that a lot of uh, instructors don't have formal training on is on these topics of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. But that's something that's becoming more and more possible. You can seek those opportunities out. A lot of institutions are developing entire offices, programs at their institutions to do professional development with their faculty and their instructors on those topics. So seeking those out is something I feel very thankful that we have now because it's something that traditionally just wasn't there. One question I had too is at the beginning, you kind of gauge where your students are at. How do you like to gauge while you're teaching the course where they're at? And how do you make sure that, I know that we have assessments and things like that, but um, how do you make sure that they're doing well in the midst of that whole process of teaching the course? Yeah, it's a super important question, Anne, because again, I think traditionally, it wasn't really done aside from assessments that most institutions for a while now have done end of semester surveys, course evaluations that students fill out. The idea there being that you can hopefully improve for the next time around, but that of course doesn't do anything for that current cohort of students. So I have, I don't always do this, but sometimes I will do mid-course surveys as well. You can launch a, a Google form anytime you want and try and get some feedback, which is nice. It does rely on students doing that. And especially if you want them anonymous, it can't be linked to a grade. So that does make it a little tricky. Sometimes the response rates aren't as great as you would like them to be. And then you aren't necessarily getting the pulse of the entire 
or even the majority of the students in the course. I think one way is assessments. I wouldn't ignore assessments. One thing that I think is often seen is that performance on early assessments, so maybe the, maybe the very first exam in the course, is often indicative of ultimate performance in the course. Unless the course is designed for some reason to get significantly harder as the course goes on or maybe significantly easier for some reason, often exam one can be an early signpost for success in the course and indicative of how well a student is understanding the material. One way to tackle that is to be very proactive early on in the semester. So look at those early assessments, could be something other than an exam or maybe an exam, and then try to target students that are struggling early on. And often a big thing to do is, is to help steer them toward resources that already exist. Another positive that I think has happened at the majority of institutions that I'm aware of is more and more resources to support students outside of just their instructor in the classroom and their traditional, say, faculty advisor. The offices have a lot of different names at Alvernia. It's called the Academic Success Center, but there's a whole group of individuals employed by the university, and that's their goal, is to help students have success, whether the student is a biology student struggling in a biology class or humanities student struggling in a, a social work class. doesn't matter. They've got tutors. They've got things like supplemental instruction or study groups or study suggestions or, or learning exercises, learning activities that are all designed to help promote student success. The key, I think, is for students to know that those resources are there, to get away from the sort of traditional stigmas that have been associated with needing help or seeking help. That means there's a problem. It means that there's something wrong. Again, it means that you're a failure or you're failing at something is a big hurdle to get over. And so there's a lot of things in place to try to help students realize that those resources are for everyone and don't necessarily indicate a problem, that it can just be a vehicle for engaging with the material outside of class, for getting together with some peers and some free snacks and interacting with course uh, materials outside of the classroom, outside of the laboratory can be really helpful. But instructors, faculty have to take an active role in that as well. They have to collaborate with those organizations, with those groups on campus. They have to be aware of them and they have to help steer students toward them. And then directly for the instructor, the traditional office hours are still a really good model, I think. Those have shifted a little bit from actually sitting in an office to also doing you know Zoom calls and things mm -hmm. like that. That's actually one of the positives that I think have come out of the pandemic is that people are more comfortable interacting virtually. There are pros and cons to it, of course, but at times where it's not safe for people to be in a small office together to have another way to do that, it also opens accessibility. Maybe Definitely. the best time for us to chat is nine o'clock at night or on the weekend or something like that, but I'm not on campus. We can do a 15 minute Zoom and, and maybe help you through that issue real quickly in a way that if our traditional office hours were the only option wouldn't, wouldn't have happened. So I think it's a, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach to help students realize all the supportive resources that they have at at any given institution. Yeah, Zoom office hours sound like something I wish I would have had. We, you talked about individuality and attenuating to each student previously. And I think that that is another avenue in which it really helps students out. We mentioned a couple of resources that you implement that are kind of different from a standard professor in my mind. I remember when you taught me and you did the pre-class survey, I was like, whoa, that's so cool and very interesting. Could you run through any other resources that you've picked up lately that you like to implement in your courses that might be a little bit off the wall or that you think are maybe non-canonical or something like that, that could benefit other people to consider? Sure. I don't think I have anything that's too novel. Again, I'm a, I'm a non-reinvent the wheel person. I did mention the Tiny Earth Network and the lab manual that they've put together. I don't know how unique it is. I think they have over 700 institutions currently employing that model across the world, not just in the US. But I, I still think there's a lot of non-discovery based labs happening out there. So that would be one I would recommend is looking into things like that tiny earth model, which again is specific to microbiology, but I know that there's resources for other types of topics as well. One thing that I've strongly adopted, again, I know a lot of other people that do this as well though, is in my labs, for all the labs that I teach, I have my students keep electronic notebooks or digital notebooks, as opposed to the traditional paper notebooks. There's a lot of reasons for this. And sometimes it's a hard sell to convince my students early on that it's the better way to go. It only takes one like IT issue where some software is not working for students to want to go back to writing on paper. But I do think that, I don't even want to say it's the future, that it's already here, that basically simply because the majority of our data today is all digital. It's all in files and spreadsheets. 
you're not getting printouts off an instrument these days that are records of that and our interpretations of that information should just be digital as well. And it really promotes collaboration. I think the pandemic brought this to light. I remember some colleagues of mine that were having their students snail mailing their notebooks to them so they could grade them. And then they had to get some mail them back to them and things like that because, you know, you weren't in the classroom anymore because of the pandemic. It's not an issue if you're doing it electronically and it's all shared mm-hmm. in the cloud. You can access it anytime. It allows students to interact with each other's data and notebooks and give peer feedback very easily because they can access it at any time. And it's how science goes, right? I don't know anybody today that's doing a project in isolation. All the research I know of that's going on is happening in groups, collaborative groups, where those researchers are sharing their protocols, sharing their data, working together in a collaborative environment that by nature involves collaborating electronically with things shared through different platforms and in the cloud. So I'm a a strong supporter of digital notebooks and, and using cloud servers in general. I hardly print anything out these days. I will just share the protocol like, you know, we'll come into lab and I'll tell my students to open the, the shared folder. We use, it's a Microsoft institution. So we use Microsoft's OneDrive. You know, open the OneDrive, the protocol is up there, pull it up on your device and let's get going. And, and when we have data, I'll throw it up there too. And, and then everybody accesses it that way. All along those lines, I think just certain software, really trying to focus on software that's free um, and free, presumably in perpetuity. I know uh, in, in a course that I had, we talked about using R a lot because that's free software getting familiar with things like that for citation software. I like Zotero a lot, which is free software. And then just using things like, uh, you know, the Google suite is great. Even just Google docs, Google slides, things like that. A lot of students are already very comfortable with those, but anytime you can help students learn something that they'll be able to presumably, unless the company goes under, I don't think Google's going anywhere. um, You'll have that for the rest of your life, the rest of your career. Mm -hmm. A lot of institutions will very kindly provide certain things to their students for free. The downside being, then you get used to it and you graduate and now you've got to find another way to fund that. So I do try to target as much freeware as, as possible. Yeah, I don't have Microsoft Office anymore and it's kind of sad, but it is what it is. Right, you know how to use it and you might never use it again. Yeah. Now I just have my institution computer and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in college, that stuff was free. Yeah, exactly. And now I have to actually like pay for Microsoft. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like no. what the heck? <laughs> well, there you go. Become a teacher, become a professor, and then it stays free. So that's one, uh, one perk to teach. Aha, there's the pitch. (laughs) That's right. Free Microsoft. (laughs) (laughs) Major perks. So now if we can take this away from resources for teachers, just kind of focusing on students in particular, what advice do you have for students on how they can be making the most of their education? Is there any advice you have for them on ways that they can make their educational experience more enriching? Yeah, sure. I mean, we hit on this a teeny bit when I mentioned that I think you could could put – all your efforts in designing the best course possible. And if the 20 students in the room don't care and don't want to be there, it's not going to go well. I don't care how great the course is. You know, you could be Adele singing up there and you're not, no one's going to clap at you. It doesn't matter how good it is. I think that, you know, I talk to my students a lot. Some of the feedback I get on those pre-semester surveys is that students do want to have an interactive classroom. They don't just want to hear an instructor fire hose information at them for 50 minutes or an hour and a half. There's that traditional idea of, sit in the classroom, open up your brain. I'm going to fill your brain for 50 minutes, close it up, go about your day. Students don't want that. They want more interaction. They want, they want the ability to have a voice in the room. They want to be able to feel like they can ask questions with none of those questions being traditional. Oh, that's a dumb question. They don't want to feel that way. Of course, it makes sense. They want to have an interaction with each other. They want to be able to interact with the instructor, you know, in a somewhat informal way as well. At the same time, Nobody wants cold calling. Nobody wants to be pointed at and say, you, what's the answer? You know, you tell me what you think without them offering it. And so I always tell my students, I get it. I don't want to cold call on anybody either, but you can't have it both ways. If a instructor's not cold calling, but nobody is willing to say anything, you're back to either cold calling to get somebody to talk, or you're back to nobody talks about the instructor for the full class period. So you got to meet halfway. There has to be a give and take there. So I always tell my students out, I want them to be obviously physically present in class, but also mentally present in class, engage. And there's probably always been a lot of distractions, but certainly today with devices and and screens, there's a whole lot of distractions. And it's a tricky thing because I'm actually somebody who prefers to take notes electronically. So if I were to take a course today, I would be sitting there with my laptop open to take notes. And there's that temptation. You know, I'm one click away from checking my email. I'm one click away from 
checking my Instagram. I'm not on Instagram. I'm one check away <laughs> from online shopping. I don't know, yep. checking sports scores, looking at a music blog, whatever. And then phones make it even more, well, it's not as discreet as students think it is, but it makes it even <laughs> easier to do that. I always remember it wasn't, oh, I forget who it was, but someone was like, no one stares at their crotch and laughs that much. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> at least so I hope true. not. <laughs> <laughs> Instructors have different ways of handling this. The most extreme, of course, is to say there's nothing electronic in this room. You walk in here, phones are put away, laptops are put away. If you're going to take notes, you do it the old-fashioned way. I haven't done that personally. I don't know if I get further along and more crotchety if, if I'll hit that point because um, I do see a utility in that. I do see – there's no doubt in my mind that students would be more, more mentally engaged and in tune. It's still on the professors too, though. I think there's a lot of cognitive research that shows that I don't care how interested in the topic you are, nobody is capable of sitting still and fully paying attention for, I think they say much more than even maybe 15 minutes before you need like a little bit of a checkout, a break, a uh, refresher. I think about this at conferences all the time where you're like, yeah. you know, on your 12th talk of the day. And if, I was so excited for this talk, but now all I can think about is coffee or something like that. <laughs> it's tough. I think sometimes we just ask more of humans than, than we should. That's not really an answer to your question, but I think it goes back to you get what you give trying to, as a student, also trying to find your own connections again. So maybe learning about the mitochondrial membrane initially seems boring, but maybe you can figure out a couple steps away, connect it to things that you do find interesting about science. Certainly if this is your major, to remembering why you chose this major and, and how it connects to those interests, whether they're professional or otherwise. The other main thing, and this is a huge challenge, is I found it to be a huge challenge, is trying to get my students to focus less on their grades and more on knowledge, more on understanding. And again, I get it because I was very guilty of this. My goal as an undergraduate was to get the grade. And I think there's, there's some good to that. I'm sure I worked harder than I would have otherwise on certain things, especially if I didn't see how it connected to what I was interested in. But there's a real danger there in that you can miss the real point of it all the knowledge portion of it, the educational portion of it, the idea that, hey, I'm trying to teach you this so that you can expand your horizon so you can better understand how the planet works, how life works, maybe gain a deeper appreciation of life, and then also take that information into your professional career. I think if all you're focused on is the exam that's happening next week, you often miss that. Here, I'll offer a challenge for you, Jamie. You just have to incentivize the actual caring about the learning with the grade. And maybe if you do that with like hidden curriculum style, I don't know. But if you can make if you can make students realize that the act of learning itself is the valuable thing and then tie a grade to how well they learned the material rather than the material itself. Let's go meta for a second. Um, maybe that maybe that's the key here. There's the challenge. You yeah. hit it on the head. Yep. Yeah. I read one recently, I forget the institution, but an instructor had buried in their syllabus to go to a particular cupboard in one of the labs in, in one of the buildings. And there was a padlock on it and it gave the combination and inside was fifty dollars. And at the end of the at the end of the semester it was still in there. No one had, uh, <laughs> no one had read that far in the syllabus because it was pretty far down. That's amazing. That was pretty funny. Yeah. So there's an incentive, but it didn't work. <laughs> To move a little bit more personally onto you, what do you think are some of the highlights for you in your career so far as being a teacher? Like, what are the, some of the things that you've enjoyed the most so far? Mm -hmm. I think students don't always realize how much their feedback really does matter to instructors. Again, the vast majority of instructors, professors, they chose that job and they're doing it because they want to teach students. They want to help students learn. They want to help students understand there's that classic, I think you hear most teachers talk about how they love the light bulb moment. They love the moment where they're talking to a student and it's clear the student doesn't understand something. And then after you work your magic, now they do, it's a really cool moment to be like, oh God, I get that now. I understand that now. Those evaluations, they really do matter. Like nice evals feel good and bad ones don't. <laughs> Some of the early advice I got was actually from a student at Haverford told me, you know, have a thick skin. Um, because uh, <laughs> particularly there, particularly there at that school, you know, students will, they'll shoot straight with you, which uh. is good. I mean, it should be, you should, you shouldn't sugarcoat it. But when those evaluations are nice, they feel good. That is a, a little bit of a highlight, but even more so than the course evals are when, uh, you know, you get individual either emails or cards or, or even just verbal conversations, say after a course ends about 
how much someone enjoyed it and not just understanding the content more, but how it impacted their life, their life beyond just the content. You know, <laughs> teachers have a really potentially large impact on students. I think almost everyone you talk to can tell you about a given teacher in their life. Could It doesn't have to be at the university level that really had an impact on why they chose the profession they did or why they got really interested in a topic or how they really helped them like a subject. And then you get the opposite too, right? How like, you know, I thought I wanted to do this and then I took so-and-so's course and I don't own anymore, right? So there's a lot of pressure there because you don't want to turn somebody off completely from a topic either. Just some that come to mind recently, I had a student tell me that they enjoyed the course, but it also, it was during their first semester of college, it really helped them with that transition from high school to college in a lot of ways. You know, that can be a very challenging time. It can be a very formative time in, in a person's life. I think the entire college experience is a very formative time. So, you know, getting to play an active role in that, I think, is a real highlight of the job. Whenever you can help a student get into any sort of program or, say, internship or position or job post-graduation, you know, whether that be formally through recommendation letters or things like that, or just informally through helping them navigate those processes, I think, is a real highlight. You can really help people. You can really make people happy sometimes, which is something I think a lot of people strive for in their life. I just think that teachers can have a massive influence in a person's life, which is a big highlight, also a source of stress. <laughs> Definitely. For sure. Can you speak a little bit to how you've grown as a person being a teacher, how that's impacted you personally? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's a more diverse position in terms of the roles that you play than I think I initially recognized through office hours through being an actual like faculty advisor to students through being a mentor to students say on a research thesis or things like that there's a lot outside of the classroom a lot of interaction that happens that sometimes requires teachers to take a different role a mentoring role or even a counseling role sometimes again things that we don't have any formal training in. <laughs> and i think those experiences they're going to change you they're going to help you grow as a person i had somebody tell me that both teaching and learning should be processes of becoming. Basically the idea that in your learning experiences and your teaching experiences, you should never remain stagnant. You should always be evolving, if you will, to keep it in biology. And I think that's very true. That's so true. I remember it reminds me of a quote, the worst thing is to think that you've arrived. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. There's a lot of them that are sort of, you know, the only constant in life is change basically, right? Mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. To wrap up, you are back at Haverford before you started teaching. You're doing your postdoc. What advice would you give to that Jamie now that you've had a little hmm. bit more experience? Eat healthier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think, um, I think just, yeah, it's probably advice that I would give a, a younger me in almost any situation would just be to stress less and enjoy the ride because things tend to work out if your initial goal, or I should say your ultimate goal is in the right place. If your ultimate, let's say learning objective to go back to what we talked about before is to, as a teacher, is to support your students to the best of your ability, then I think, yeah, the rest is going to take care of itself. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. This is a really awesome conversation. Um, and we really appreciate it to have you. Thanks a lot. Had a blast. Thank you. So Dennis, or your thoughts? Yeah, I love to hear from Jamie just because it made me think a lot about my undergrad experience with him. And it also made me reflect on how in undergrad, it's really critical to foster discovery-based environments when possible to spark students' creativity and engagement. But something I'm taking away is I wonder how this can be implemented more broadly. So just some food for thought. I also took away some broader implications for life that if you can put yourself in an area where like growth and discovery is evidently achievable, there's a really high probability that you'll make strides. And so that was something that I thought was really cool. Those are all good points, all good thoughts. Something I really liked about what Jamie had to say was I liked how he viewed the lectures a lot because he talked about it as opportunities to help students make connections and to apply what they're learning to the real world. And honestly, when I think about some of the lectures that I sat through, it was pretty much just let me read you the textbook or put it in a slightly different way. And not saying that you can't do that, but at the same time, I think the time spent in lecture is more well spent if you're actually thinking about how it applies to the world and the connections that you can make. And I think it solidifies those concepts more so in your brain. 
So to me, I thought that was a very innovative or rather thoughtful approach to how teaching should be done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Science Behind Science podcast. We look forward to catching you next time.